everyone, happy new year. Or at least that's what I was saying for maybe the first 24 hours of 2020 before, you know, Trump almost went to war with Iran, that Ukraine flight was shot down, any number of the horrible things that have already happened this year. But here on Ontario Loud, we are trying to focus at least some of our attention on the good things happening, policies and visions that could lead us to something different. And to do that, we're going to need your support. Going to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca will allow you to support the pod from anywhere from 3 to 5 to $15 per month. It's so easy. It helps us so much. You'll feel great for doing it. For those who have donated already, thank you so much for your support and on to the show. Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. And today we're continuing our coverage of the Ontario Liberal leadership race by sitting down with, I think, indisputably that race's frontrunner, former Minister of Transportation, Economic Development, and former member of Provincial Parliament for Vaughan, Stephen Del Duca. Stephen has led a life in liberal politics, serving as a staffer to Dalton McGuinty while McGuinty was leader of the opposition, then becoming MPP for Vaughan in 2012 and serving right up until 2018. Uh, he's been a writing president, a campus club president, a campaign manager, a member of the executive council. Stephen has a law degree from Osgood and also spent some time as director of public affairs for the Carpenters District Association of Ontario. And now Stephen is vying to lead the party. Stands a pretty good shot at doing that if you look at the 14,000 odd memberships sold by his campaign, which is a pretty significant chunk of the memberships in the party overall, or the fundraising, uh, or any of the metrics that we typically track in these kind of things. So Stephen, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll quickly note that Stephen is the fifth leadership candidate to come on the podcast. Listeners can go back and listen to our interviews with Alvin, Kate, and Mitzi at any time. And we'll be sitting down with Michael Cotto later this week, so stay tuned. But today is all about Team Del Duca. So Stephen, uh, I guess starting at a fairly high level, why do you think specifically you are the right person to take on Doug Ford in the next provincial election? What are you hoping Ontarians see when they see you and Doug Ford on that debate stage? So I guess the first thing I would say is that, um, and you mentioned this in the intro, I, I have had the honor of being around Liberal Party politics for some time. And so I've, I've had a front row seat to multiple different cycles of leadership renewals provincially and federally. And so obviously for the very first time being a candidate in one of these races, I've had a chance to watch the rest of the field up close. And, and I will say as a lifelong liberal um, that we are as a party very, very blessed in this moment because, you know, the field of candidates is exceptionally strong and smart and focused on the right things. And so I, look, I believe right off the top that any one of us who's running to lead this party at this point in time is by a very wide margin significantly better than what Doug Ford and his friends have provided to the people of Ontario. And if I'm not successful on March the 7th, I will be absolutely honored to stand alongside and support the winner and do whatever I can to help the party win in 2022. Uh, I look at the calendar as one of the most important things for Ontario Liberals to focus on as we renew our leadership. When we come out of the convention in March, we will have 26 months until an election campaign is legislated to begin in the province. Obviously, Election Day is currently set for June 2nd of 2022. And in those 26 months, which may seem like a long time, but if you talk to uh, those individuals who've had the chance to be sort of architects around preparing for province-wide or national election campaigns, two years, essentially two years goes by in the blink of an eye. And we are at a lower ebb organizationally as a party than at any point in the last three plus decades that I've been involved and active. 
So we have to find those compelling ideas that can be, you know, important essential parts of the platform that we present to the people of Ontario. We're going to have to vet, search for, vet, nominate over 100 candidates that aren't currently incumbents in the legislature. We know we're going to need to raise millions of dollars. We know our local riding associations, many of which are struggling at the moment, will have to sort of rebound and be rebuilt. And all of that work will have to occur in those 26 months while our next leader and our party are facing unprecedented attacks from Doug Ford and from Ontario Proud and from all of their friends. And so I think um, my experience, I think my energy and the relentless work ethic that I brought to this campaign positioned me strongly uh, to be able to get the party ready for that election campaign and take on and defeat Doug Ford. Before we move on, if maybe just follow up a little bit. Um, so uh, you said a lot about uh, rebuilding the party and, and you being the right person to do that. But um, going back to Chris's question about when, when people see you in the debate with Doug Ford as a, as a leader, as an individual communicating with the public, what are you hoping people will see? What's the, what's the, um, you know, what's, what is it that people are going to say, that's the person I want to lead the province of Ontario in 2022? I think they're going to see someone who's motivated by some, uh, I think, profoundly important things. You know, my wife and I are raising two young daughters. Our daughters are 12 and 8. And when I think even with today's latest news around the disaster that we see occurring in public education, uh, obviously with the need to confront the climate emergency uh, and with so much, so much else that's going on, you know, I think a lot about <clears throat> how will my daughters look back on this era when we had a moment to lead, not just me, we collectively had a moment to lead. And, and what will that look like through their eyes? I think of my parents who are aging, who are just a little bit older. They've sacrificed and worked hard their whole lives. And they've been very dedicated to their family and to the community, obviously. And they simply want to be able to live uh, healthy lives. And they want to be able to have the retirement income security, for example, and know that they can stay in their home as long as possible and be healthy doing that. Uh, I think of my neighbors and uh, how they continue to struggle to make ends meet and see cost of living pressures every single day of the week. I think all of these different individuals as proxies for the broader population, I think they want to see a government at Queens Park and a premier that's on their side and demonstrably on their side. So I think when voters look at me up against Doug Ford, I'm hoping that they see their neighbor, that they see someone who in their moment of need, in their moment of vulnerability will be there, will have their back and will be on their side. And someone who is motivated by helping to support the 15 or so million people who live in this province, not simply there to help himself and his friends like Doug Ford is. So uh, in watching the debates, uh, one of the lines I, I've noticed you go back to a little bit, um, and particularly when positioning that, that experience that you bring to the table as a pretty partisan guy, which strikes me as a, an interesting and a rare self-description in, in, in this day and age where um, most people shy away from describing themselves as, as partisan. So I'm curious, like, why is liberal partisanship an identity that res resonates with you personally? And how do you use that to bring liberals together? Look, I, I believe on balance that when liberals are focused on the right things and we were in power, as we all know, for 15 consecutive years, I think on balance, we delivered some pretty remarkable progress for this province. Uh, for example, in all of my touring over the last year, I've yet to meet a single Ontarian who tells me that or has told me that they wish we were burning coal once again to produce our electricity, right? And so I think when liberals are focused on progress and focused on delivering results, we do really remarkable things. I also think because I am somebody who does not believe in polarization, does not believe in extremes, and I believe that's a consistent sort of philosophy with most of Ontario, 
um, that if liberals can find a way to occupy the largest amount of space on, if I can call it the political spectrum, uh, that we will actually be a reflective of the province and B will be position our, positioning ourselves uh, very well for that, elect- that next election campaign. But to me, it's more than that. You know, I, I have not just been, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, an elected official. I keep talking about the fact that it's 31 years. I'm 46 now. And I started at the 15 years of age being active in the party. And so I've had lots of opportunities and I'm a very keen observer of politics, not just in Ontario, but beyond like most of us are right. Mm. I'm I'm always fascinated by people who will come into the process, will seek elected office, will spend time in elected office, will aspire to lead political parties and will, for very good intentions, will want to believe that the system is different than what the system actually is. And so I'm really fond of describing myself. And I've stolen these words from Ted Sorensen, who was JFK's senior advisor, senior counselor, and speechwriter. Uh, I really do view myself as an idealist without illusion. And I think that's a really important place or space for liberals to occupy in this moment. I don't know another liberal. Every liberal I know is how I'll put it. Every liberal I know would like to live in the world where excessive partisanship is not the case. Mm -hmm. where every single debate is focused on facts and policy and analysis, where the adversarial nature is no longer, which is really at the root of our system, where that doesn't exist and everybody plays by the rules and there are no personal attacks and nothing is derogatory. That's the space that we would all like to inhabit. (laughs) I I don't know. You don't look around in the world and see... uh... (laughs) But when I think of the cuts to education, when I think of the lack of a plan for the climate crisis, when I think of the lack of a plan relating to the current and future economy, and so much more, to me, the stakes are so high that I I don't want to allow myself to live in that fantasy land. I live in the real world. And when we come out of the convention, there will be, like we saw against Kathleen, like they tried to do against Justin Trudeau, there will be an unprecedented attack that will be delivered against our next leader and our party. And so I don't want to shy away from the fact that, look, my campaign slogan is the fight of our lives. I'm not shying away from the fact that that's the reality we're going to inhabit. I think it's really important for liberals to be proud of what we've managed to achieve when we're focused on progress. And I don't run away from the notion that the cut and thrust of our business is the reality. I'd like to believe we'll get to a world one day where it's not quite as acrimonious as it is today, but we need to win in 2022. We need to make sure Doug Ford does not get a second majority government and a blank check to keep destroying Ontario. And I think the only way to do that is to make sure that we are collectively idealists without illusion and that we are living in the real world. That's um, how would you I'm interested how you would um, uh, translate that idea of sort of idealism with a strong pragmatic uh, streak into uh, sort of the traditional political spectrum. Like where would you self-identify as a liberal within, you know, within the spectrum of of liberals? So the the liberal party has had many incarnations over its history, as you know. I mean, you've seen a lot of leaders come and go. And while there are things that bind the party together, there are also different positions within the spectrum that different leaders bring. How do you feel about that um, that that concept of the spectrum, where would you fall within it? And then also, how do you approach change? Um, are you, when you talk about your pragmatism, does that mean that you, um, you know, you tend to take a slow and steady approach to change or um, sort of thinking about that, um, that temperament uh, of leadership, where would you put yourself uh, in that, uh, in that space as well? So I'll, I'll start with the second, the second part of that question, I guess, first. And then if I forget the first part, please come back and remind me. Okay. But I, I, you know, I look at it and think that 
I'm a liberal, obviously, and as liberals, we believe that that progress is the most important thing and that we can always do better. One of the lines I've used on the hustings throughout the last year is that if I thought everything in Ontario was perfect today and that the status quo was the very best we could achieve, I believe that would make me a conservative. And conversely, if I felt that arguing and yelling and screaming and the fight was more important than the outcome, I believe that would make me a new Democrat. So I'm neither. I I really am focused on what does the progress look like and then how do we deliver the result that's attached or aligned to that progress that we want to achieve. But there is something fundamentally important in that notion of being idealistic without being, uh, you know, without suffering from being uh, under an illusion that says you got to win an election. You know, like in the course of uh, many debates and not just in this leadership campaign, but beyond, I've heard a lot of people talk about this notion that it's not just about winning elections. Well, I'm sorry to say you can't actually deliver very much change from the opposition benches when you're confronting a bully premier who's got a majority government. It's just not the way our system works. So it's a necessary precondition to deliver on the progress that we want and believe in to win the election. And I think that's really important. We have to remind ourselves as we go through this process that we can't afford to once again, even inadvertently, kind of lecture at the people of Ontario. I think we have to listen to what they're looking for. And then I think we have to bring them along with us uh, on some critically important issues. But we have seen leaders throughout our time in this province and in this country who don't appear to be massive change agents, who don't, don't appear to be revolutionary, who appear to be incrementalists. They continue to win elections. And then remarkably, when you look back on their careers as prime ministers or premiers, you realize, oh my goodness, some of the change they brought about was transformative and it's lasting, right? Prime Minister Kretchen is one of my political heroes. He spoke as the guest, as the guest of honor at my nomination meeting in Bonn last April, April of 2018, two Aprils ago now, I guess. And, you know, I look at Prime Minister Kretchen, three consecutive elections, and was he a flawless prime minister? Was he a perfect politician? Of course not. But on balance, some of the work that he did, whether we're talking about fiscal responsibility, whether we're talking about Canada's position in the world, whether we're talking about his response to the war in Iraq, all of it, Mm -hmm. he managed to do. And if you look back at the pundits who observed him in his earliest days running for leader and in his earliest days as prime minister, they talked about him as being sort of a nuts and bolts, mechanical, lifelong politician who wasn't going to deliver anything truly transformational, except that here we are many years later and the legacy still stands. Same thing here in the province of Ontario. I I can remember the leadership convention when Dalton McGuinty was elected. I was at that convention in 1996. There were two fairly stark choices at that convention. Dalton, who represented that sort of pragmatic kind of middle of the road, if I can put it that way, centrist perspective in our party, and Gerard Kennedy, who was also a good friend and a great liberal, who at the time was running the Toronto Daily Food Bank and came from the more progressive wing of the party. And that's a healthy discussion and a healthy debate right? And many observers viewed Gerard as the transformational figure. And maybe he would have been if he won. We all know Gerard went on to a really, really phenomenal career in public service. But I mentioned this a second ago, that pragmatic, we've got to bring the people along with us. We've got to be successful electorally um, approach that Dalton and the entire team brought to the, the 10 or 11 years that he was premier. Well, we stopped burning coal and we produced a green belt and full day kindergarten, and we hired thousands of nurses, and we expanded Go service, and we did this, and we did that, and we did so much more. Those are all legacies that still, fortunately, endure. So I think it's important to always look for ways to deliver progress and to recognize we are not perfect, we are not fully formed, we need more progress, but you have to bring the people along with you. And that requires a level of 
coalition building across the broadest part of the spectrum in this province that I think it's really important for us to keep our eye on. I, so, Alexi, I don't know if that answers the first part as well. You know, I, I view myself as someone who recognizes people in the province work hard for the money they earn. They understand they give that money to government and taxes and fees. They want that government that, that government to invest the money responsibly. Doesn't mean they're slavishly attached to balanced budgets every single year. But if we're not going to be in balance, it does mean they want to make sure the investments are occurring in a way that demonstrates governments on their side, healthcare, education, and so much more. Uh, they don't want to see wasteful spending. They don't want to see incompetent government. I think we have to pay heed to that. I think we have to respect and honor that. But I think we also have to constantly look for socially progressive outcomes, and I support those as well. Thanks. Yeah, that definitely answers it. And I, I appreciate the comparisons to um, to previous uh, previous leaders as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so actually, maybe maybe uh, digging in a, a little bit, um, uh, this is typically a public policy podcast. I want to ask you sure. uh, about some of the policies that you're bringing <clears throat> forward. Right. But looking through sort of the roster of issues that you want to address, rolling back some of the forward cuts to education, taking on climate change, investing in an economic dignity charter, which, uh, as I understand it, at a high level would provide benefits for workers in a economy of transition and change. That's the idea. Yeah. A lot of these things will require new spending, mm -hmm. a, t a ton of new spending. Uh, to enable change investment in the future. One of the things that's kind of dismayed us on Ontario Loud um, is how the fiscal debate tends to be boiled down all the deficits and debt, how successfully the Ford government has made the conversation about that, um, instead of, a, a, I guess, a balanced view that looks at people and the economy. So I'm curious for, to achieve the kind of ambitious, to achieve the ambitious policy goals that you set out, um, big transformational investments, what should our fiscal goals be? And would a Del Duca liberal government look at revenues to address some of these things? So I kind of, it's a great question. And I kind of touched upon my perspective on fiscal responsibility just mm -hmm. a second ago in the yeah. previous answer. So I think, so I refuse to surrender the fiscal responsibility narrative or story to conservatives. We have decades of evidence federally, provincially, internationally that demonstrate our friends to the right who talk a good game often deliver the worst fiscal records, right? But that aside, I think it's really important for us to not be afraid to consistently say to the people of Ontario words that are similar to the following. We know as liberals, you work hard for the money that you earn. We know you do that. And we want to make investments with the money you transfer to government that will demonstrate that we have a plan for you, for your kids, your neighbors, your community. We all want strong public health care. We all want strong public education and so on and so forth. I don't believe most Ontarians are so obsessed with the budget being balanced at all costs under all circumstances every single year. I just don't think they want government to come across like a government doesn't care about balancing that government's not competent enough to govern and that, or that government is going to be wasteful in the approach because they're incompetent or don't care. So part of the discussion with the people of Ontario, as we prepare for 2022, and then certainly during the election campaign is consistently reminding them we respect how hard they work for their money. But here's the thing, and, I, and I've used this repeatedly on the trail with non-liberals, with just people I've met on the trail. And I think it's, it's not just a communications approach. It's, it's actually, to me, pretty tangible. If you or a loved one happens to get sick in this province today and your entire life shrinks down to the size of a hospital bed, in that moment, when you're looking for a diagnosis or for treatment, when you're very, very much at your most vulnerable, you just want to see a doctor or a nurse practitioner and someone to give you a sense of you're going to get better. I don't think in that moment you're contemplating exactly what the size of the provincial deficit is. As a parent, when you send your kids off to school in the morning, you want to make sure that they are learning, that they are learning the right things in the right way, and they are being taught by motivated, 
professional educators, that they're safe, they're secure, and they're learning enough to give them a bright future. And I think in that moment, when you want their school to be safe, when you want it to be properly sort of built, when the teacher, you want the teachers to be motivated, especially in this moment with what's happening with Doug Ford and his friends and their approach to education, in that moment as a parent, I don't believe you're thinking about what's exactly the size of the provincial deficit down to a particular decimal point. And the same thing goes for all of those other critically important issues that we discussed in my platform so far. Do you believe here, for example, in the GTHA that gridlock's a significant problem? Who could doubt it? It's horrific right now. If a government's going to make smart, responsible investments to make your commute on a day-to-day basis a little more affordable and a little shorter, I don't think you're going to say, sorry, don't do that. Don't get me home to my family 10 minutes quicker every day of the week. Don't give me that hour back because I'm so focused on exactly what the deficit is today. Liberals need to make sure at every turn that we are telling people we respect their money, we respect how hard they work for it, but then we need to demonstrate with our ideas why what we're wanting to invest in is actually for them. Yeah. And I I think there's an interesting counter. Uh, The flip side of that coin is that you can scare people about the deficit and people will agree that the deficit is a a problem. But do they want the kind of cuts that we see the Ford government implementing to tackle that? And uh, Doug Ford's poll numbers have have answered that question for us. Um, uh, Or at least that could be one theory as to why that's the case. Yeah. Uh, so you've um, you've been very specific about the Ford policies you want to roll back. Obviously, you have a, a slate of really interesting policies of your own. Um, but thinking about uh, Del Duca government um, and um, you know either thinking of it from a sort of a first hundred days perspective or branding branding your government and yourself as a a, a premier with a a certain a certain goal uh, something that really ties together your your vision for the province. And what would be those the signature investment or the signature initiative that you see from a policy perspective uh, of a Stephen Del Duca government? Um, the kind of thing like a full day kindergarten or or similar things we've had in the past with uh, with previous premiers. That's a great question. I think for I would say it's probably a combination. I don't have a fancy title to attach to either of these things, but I would say, and I and I believe they go hand in hand. I would think the two most important policy thrusts of that first hundred days, first six months, first year would be a combination of the reinvestments and the repositioning of how critically important public education at all levels, making it affordable, making it accessible. Again, that's primary, secondary, post-secondary, restoring the cuts and looking for new frontiers for us to tackle in education in a way that makes sense uh, for people, tying how we educate ourselves, how we educate our kids and grandkids to the economy that we see, to the labor market outcomes that we know, the labor market research that exists that, that's, at, that's at, our, at our disposal. And I think coming back to the Economic Dignity Charter, you know, when I launched that, I told the story about how in 1951, when my grandfather came from Italy, he was working as a laborer here in the GTA on underground sewer projects, sewer and water main projects. This is before most of the union organizing and the construction industry occurred in Toronto. So pretty much everybody was kind of left to their own devices. And he was involved in a work project and uh, he was injured. There was a there was a collapse in the underground project that he was on. He broke his hip and several ribs. This is like 1954 or so. So this is before the Hogs Hollow disaster and the rest of it. And he got lucky because the man who owned the company um, actually um, had a great deal of affection for my grandfather. And so he brought him from being, after he'd recovered, he brought him from being a laborer to work in the company's headquarters as sort of a handyman. My grandfather was a little guy uh, and he walked with a pronounced limp for the rest of his life, had brutal arthritis in that hip because hip replacement surgery in the 50s wasn't what it is today. 
Uh, but he did get lucky and he continued to have, as I like to call it, economic dignity because his boss actually liked him. So what I said when I talked about the economic dignity charter is that economic dignity shouldn't be a stroke of good fortune. It shouldn't be left to chance, right? And I think we are a wealthy province and I think that we have done well. And I think that all of the macroeconomic indicators are strong thanks to the investments we've made through now more than one generation. I just don't think enough Ontarians are feeling that. So I think moving forward fairly rapidly with the consultation that's required to, uh, to create that notion of a modern economic dignity charter would be something very, very important to me. And I see those as going hand in hand, properly funding and proper programming for education at all levels and providing support for our entrepreneurs at the same time as making sure that people are not left behind and that we see a growing gap on the sort of income or wealth inequality scale, if I can put it that way. Uh, it's interesting sort of like philosophy of putting forward policy in a leadership race that you've you, you, you brought. Because um, I, I noticed some similarities between that, sort of the patient's bill of rights, where it's sort of about here's a standard that you can expect. One of the things that I think about uh, when I think about some of these standards is the AODA Act, which was brought right. in in the early beginning years, which uh, we see uh, has seen both significant progress, yeah. um, uh, but also some public sector institutions uh, struggling to implement massive investments uh, being needed uh, to support that kind of thing. Is that the kind of thing that you, you think about at all? Is there, how, how do you sort of create a, a standard that might be appealing to people, that might be inspiring to people, um, but then create like an action plan that, 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 that supports that? You know, is it just sort of an implicit commitment that, you know, we need to fund up to that standard or that we need to? So, I mean, I'm, I'm a really uh, to, the, to the point where it drives people in my life crazy, including those who work on my campaign and certainly in my personal life. I am a huge believer <clears throat> in measuring progress and setting targets and measuring progress against the targets that are set, right? I just, I just think if you're not measuring what matters, as the mm -hmm. saying goes, you're not, it's all platitudes, it's all slogans, right? And so I, I'm, I'm, it is really important for me, and whether it's the healthcare ideas that I put out there or some of the others, to, to make sure that we are attaching targets that we can measure against. I do think it's also important, though, coming back to a couple of questions ago, to make sure that where, where the faith or the confidence or trust deficit exists in our system, I think, is that in our political system is that for too many cycles, too many generations, too many people feel like politicians set expectations in the stratosphere and are constantly disappointing them. And whether that's fair or not, that's just a perception that exists. So I think it's important to set targets and measure against the progress that's being achieved. But I think it's also important to level with people. So week and a half ago, I put out a plan for Northern Ontario. I talked about the need to, to four lane the Trans-Canada Highway. It is, that's an absolutely enormous infrastructure undertaking and promise. And a reporter asked me, so what kind of time horizon are you talking about for this? And I looked at him and I said, probably 20 to 25 years. Now it's not normal or often that you hear a politician talk about a quarter century as they're, as they're positioning some sort of major project. But I felt in that moment, and I still feel in that moment, there's no point in me saying I can four lane the Trans Canada in 10 years when I actually know for a fact that's impossible. Mm -hmm. And you, there's a lot, there's a lot of different things government tend to overpromise on and then under deliver. I think it's really important for liberals as we seek to regain the trust of Ontarians that we try a little bit of the sort of reverse magic on that. Let's be bold and let's be progress oriented, but let's make sure that we are making commitments that can be achieved and then overproduce, over, overachieve. I think voters will respond very, very well to that, especially in light of what Doug Ford's doing. So maybe with our last uh, question or two, uh, I want to shift a little bit to the party and 
uh, process of this race. So we've asked all the candidates uh, who we've had in uh, what they think of the process the party has used to pick the leader, uh, whether they support it. Um, all of them have said to some degree uh, they would like it to change and would have liked it to change before the process uh, started. So I'm curious, you know, uh, as the sort of presumed front runner of this race, uh, what, your, what your perspective is on it. And I guess uh, sorry, that is the question. <laughs> so, I mean, I... I've now had the chance to be actively involved in every federal leadership since 1990, uh, when Cretchen beat Martin in Calgary, and every provincial one since 92, when Lynn McLeod beat Murray Alston in Hamilton. And I think the one thing that we probably didn't, me included, uh, or perhaps me especially, that we didn't necessarily foresee with the hybrid, because our system today really is a hybrid of one member, one vote, and delegated, right? Mm -hmm. it's, that, it's that curious hybrid we have unique, I think, in the system, like in the broader system. And I don't think we, I don't think we recognized, or I'll say, I don't think I recognized that every other time in my experience, this kind of system or a variation of it's being used, even though we might not have been empowered every time, the party federally and provincially tended to be healthier than we are today. I think using the hybrid one member, one vote delegated system we have is particularly difficult to effectively go through I guess, or deploy when a party is as badly off as we are at this moment. And when we certainly need to bring in lots of new people to the party. And then when we, when, when a lot of the people who might have experience have kind of walked away because there was that June 7th, 2018 political decapitation we experienced <laughs> and, and explaining to just everyday rank and file people, the notion, and I'm pretty well schooled in it, having lived through it through so many cycles but standing in a room and answering a question to people who have been recruited to join the party about how the system works, you can kind of see it on their faces that it's, it's a little hard for a person to navigate, right? So when, when we gathered at our AGM in June and uh, the party considered the notion of whether we should switch the leadership format, obviously it came close, 57 or so percent. I was neutral throughout that entire discussion and debate, not just at the AGM, but leading into the AGM. I made a commitment that day, and it's a commitment that I stand by, and I put that commitment into my 100-day action plan for the leadership, which is that I believe following the leadership, we need the, the new leader and the party needs to appoint a task force to review our leadership selection format. I think what's really important about doing it when there's not a vacancy in the leader spot is that the discussion doesn't get overtaken by partisan interests, and that's ironic given that I'm a pretty partisan guy. But I found that it's a tough, I believe anyway, it's a tough conversation to have when there's a leadership vacancy because it's too easy for different individuals who might aspire to the leadership in that moment, people within their own camps, if camps even exist, to want to start to weigh the pros and cons of what kind of format will benefit them in that moment. The best thing the Ontario Liberal Party could have done after Kathleen Wynne was selected in January of 2013 with the two or three AGMs that we had between then and today was to contemplate the leadership selection format when we didn't have the pressure of a looming leadership campaign. And we didn't. I mean, for whatever reason, we didn't. That's a failing on our part collectively. But I do believe the next leader, and I've commit, committed to this, will need to move swiftly, appoint a task force, review not just what's happened in our own party or what happens in the Ontario PC party, for example, but look for best practices both locally, across the country, internationally, if that's required, provide a fairly quick report back to the leader and executive council so the party can contemplate, should we make a change? Should it be a wholesale change? Should we tweak with what we have? And put the party in a position to provide truly neutral advice to rank and file members so the decision can be made in a thoughtful and you know well-educated well way instead of in the 
hothouse environment of a looming leadership campaign. So that's in my 100-day action plan. If I win the leadership March the 7th, we will we will appoint that task force. We'll get that work and, and we'll see what kind of changes the party wants to embrace going forward. So maybe let's, uh, on a bit of a lighter note, let's talk a little bit about your opponents for leadership, but in a good way, in a good way. Um, what uh, what are a couple of things, just one, one or two things that you've heard, ideas from them uh, on the debate stage or or in their, the things they've released publicly where you've thought, oh, that's actually a really great idea. Uh, maybe I'll steal that if I become leader. <laughs> I think there's a few. I, 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 I've, I've not heard... I'll put it to you this way. I've not heard a single, I'm, I'm thinking now, with the exception of perhaps one, I've not heard a single idea that's come from any of the other leadership candidates that I have a visceral bad reaction to. And it's interesting, with the exception of one, one idea. Can I poke and, on that one? <laughs> in a second. In, in the first debates we've had, and, and we have one you know, coming up, and there's more coming still, You know, we some people who've observed the debates have told me, well, you know, there's really no heavy duty clash. There's no, and and that the truth of the matter is, as liberals, as Ontario liberals, there are some ideas that uh, that are pushing the envelope a little bit in a couple of ways. But but we we are not we are all operating within a fairly narrow band of concepts and ideas because that's actually kind of the nature of our party. There are people in this race who are a little further to the left of me. There are some who are perhaps on some issues a little further to the right. That's the nature of our party, right? But I, by and large, everything I've heard, you know, expanding access and affordability to public transit, um, the need for more electrification in our public transit buses that Kate's talked about, the affordability pieces, Michael's on transit, uh, support both of those concepts. Um, the need for a real plan around addressing the climate crisis is something that I'm very supportive of. Uh, I think every leadership candidate has now confirmed that we would that we would, well, every candidate's confirmed that at the very least, we would reconstitute the basic income pilot. Obviously, Alvin's talked about going further. Um, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. Um, yeah, on balance, I think we're all operating in a fairly, again, narrow band in the philosophical spectrum. And I, I think that that's a good sign. One of the other things I did commit to in my 100-day action plan post-leadership, if I'm successful, is the need to hit the ground running on platform development and consultation. I was Kathleen's platform co-chair in 2014, the first iteration of Common Ground, where for the very first time in our party's history, we crowdsourced for, for platform ideas. Uh, I was the co-chair for that exercise. That takes time, and that takes time to do effectively, and it's important to have the right mix of people involved in that process, and I don't want to wait, if I'm successful in March, I don't want to wait a year to get that process started. I want it to begin in earnest, and I'm hopeful that uh, people involved in the leadership and people across the party and people who are not necessarily active in the party today that have an aversion to what they see in Doug Ford, lots of people like that, but they have an interest in moving the province forward with good progressive ideas. I'm hoping that we can embrace all of that and bring them to the inside. But it's a great field and it's a great race and I'm having the time of my life. <laughs> um, uh, I, I can't let you go without asking what the one idea that you alluded to that you were not. So, I mean, it's not, you know, I, I can understand where it's coming from, but I do support the current school board structure that we have in the province of Ontario. And I think that in particular in this moment, when we see the very notion of public education under a daily assault, and and I think that comes Frankly, that doesn't come because Doug Ford um, is trying to balance the books. That comes because, and we know this, time after time, it happened. It happened under Mike Harris and Ernie Eves. Conservatives in this province do not have or put the same level of faith and confidence in the notion, the philosophical notion of the importance of public education that we do. 
And I think that their attempts to continue to sort of bring about churn and chaos in the publicly funded system are bad news for the students, bad news for the parents, bad news for our economy, bad news for our society. And I would not want to go forward with even a well-intentioned effort that would further undermine or add more churn or anxiety to that process. So I respect all the ideas being brought forward, but I don't support that one. All right. Well, Stephen Delzuka, thank you so much for your time today. Best of luck on the campaign trail. Um, Thank you both. It's been great. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. We want to thank Stephen Delzuka so much for joining Ontario Live today, and we wish him well in the campaign going forward. We will be releasing our interviews with candidate Brenda Hollingsworth on Friday and Michael Cotone next Tuesday. We will then have wrapped up all of our candidate interviews. So hopefully these are helpful if you're thinking about who you might want to vote for. We'll try to post them all in one place so that you know you can listen to all of them. And you know, if you're thinking about who your second or third choice might be, uh, particularly for those thinking of going with delegates to the convention, uh, hopefully that helps. Ontario Loud is hosted by Sam Andry, Alexi White, myself, Chris Martin. Philip Askew does our recording engineering. Aisha Anwar and Harmon Mundy do our comms and our research. Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit and many nations. We honor and respect the treaties that are still alive today. And we recognize that Indigenous people in Canada must still fight for their rights in the settler colonial society. We need to do everything we can to change that. So thank you as always for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>